The Guardian. Hello again, I'm Michael White at Westminster with The Guardian's daily podcast. An exciting day here, PMQs and the Labour leadership nominations. Diane Abbott has just scraped over the line to stay in the contest. We'll be hearing exclusively from Harriet Harman. It's going to see our membership go up. It's going to see debate generated in the party. And you know, at the end of it, four million people will get a ballot paper. We'll also be looking back over PMQs with The Guardian's uh, incomparable sketchwriter, Simon Hoggart. And I can say at no additional cost to the taxpayer, the flag of St George will fly above Downing Street during the World Cup. I'm John Dennis here at The Guardian's HQ, where we'll hear about a major new study into the genetic causes of autism. It's kind of opening the door onto a whole new world of research into this very, very debilitating condition. Ian Black will be telling us about the fresh sanctions against Iran imposed today by the UN Security Council. The feeling is that uh, the Iranians will be brought up short by the international unanimity behind these measures. A new exhibition looks at the human body's largest organ, skin. A hafted chisel made of uh, the wing bone of an albatross. It has a flat blade and it's literally um, carved into your face. This is uh, Michael White at Westminster, where we now know that five Labour MPs are going to be in contention between now and late September for the party leadership. The three we know about, uh, the two Millibands and the two Eds, Balls and Miliband, David Miliband, of course, plus the former Health Secretary, Andy Burnham, who's performing today uh, in the chamber against Andrew Lansley. Uh, and, of course, uh, the only one who wasn't a minister and wasn't uh, an inside track, the outsider herself, Diane Abbott, first uh, black woman to contend for the Labour leadership, scraped over the line, and uh, after this I bumped into Harriet Harman and said, that's pretty exciting, what do you think? Here's her answer. All the nominations are in. It's clear who's nominated. We've got a great team of excellent candidates. And the thing about this election, and it's going to run all the way till the 25th of September, so I don't think they'll be having much, by the way, of summer holidays, but they'll be campaigning right throughout the summer. It's going to see our membership go up. It's going to see debate generated in the party. And, you know, at the end of it, four million people will get a ballot paper. It's the biggest election bar none, except for the general election. I'm an unreconstructed bloke, but even I can see that Diane Abbott's presence lifts the event as an event because she's different from the other four, isn't that right? I think they're all different from each other and I think the party has got a really uh, you know, it's a hard choice ahead of them. You're a loyal trooper, thank you. (laughs) A few minutes later, hanging around in Portcullis House, I bumped into uh, Diane Abbott's uh, more or less key supporter, former Arts Minister, many other things, MP for Tottenham, David Lammy. Look, I think this is a fantastic, it's actually a historic moment, and if you look at the range of people that's nominated her, they come from a range of backgrounds across the party. It was down to the wire, but I think that the debate over the next few weeks will be stronger because Diane Abbott is now on the ticket, and I'm pleased that I played a small part in making it happen. You were a campaign manager, weren't you? You were being shy there. <laughs> I don't know. Well, look, I... I no, you're it, Ken Livingstone's it, it, campaign manager for the London Mayor. Have I got that right? Uh, I don't think I've officially got that title for Diane, but I, I, I felt very, very strongly that it was important that a woman was on the ballot. She brings things to this debate. I think PLP members saw that in the hustings a few days ago. 
and she's got some really big names that have come forward to nominate her. It's really typical of the way this place works. Uh, you talk to MPs and they tell you something really interesting and you say, will you say that on the microphone? They say, oh, no, I wouldn't want to say that uh, on the record, even though there's nothing wrong with it. I just had a vivid description from someone of how uh, Diane Abbott's team had to scramble together the last couple of votes to get her over the 33-vote nomination threshold. Uh, uh, I myself saw Diane Abbott wearing what I thought was a ballroom dress, looking rather smart. Get Dennis Skinner out of the chamber right at the end of Prime Minister's question time, right on the deadline, maybe slightly over it, some would say, to go and uh, uh, go to room 14 where the nominations were being taken. That's the committee room in the main building. And uh, Jack Straw, uh, he was there at the last minute. And uh, I just had a quite moving account of Phil Willis, the immigration minister. Bit of a hardliner, some might say, in the last government. Comes in, he's the last person to nominate Diane Abbott. And here she is in historic moment, black woman standing for the leadership of the Labour Party, big tears come up into her eyes, and I'm told, I can't really believe this from such a hard nut as Woolas, it was even claimed that Woolas teared up at this moment of meeting when he carried her over the line. Who'd have thought it, eh? Another MP with a finger in this particular pie, Ian Austin, West Midlands MP. You've got five in the ballot paper now, is that a good thing for the Labour Party? Well, I'm really pleased we've got a, you know, we've that pretty much everybody wanted to get on, apart from, you know, apart from John McDonnell. But I'm really pleased that the five got on. I think that's uh, that's really good. It gives the gives party members, uh, you know, a good uh, a good field to choose from, and we can have a good debate over the over the next few months. Uh, John McDonald stood down for Diane Abbott. That struck me as the right thing to do. You ought to get a woman on the ballot, particularly uh, a black woman like Diane uh, uh, Abbott, uh, liven it all up a bit, put those men on their toes. Uh, What's your sense of the balance of it? The left failed to get a united candidate last time. Michael Meacher, John McDonnell fought each other to the death. This time, he's done the right thing, hasn't he? Well, look, I'm really pleased Diane's on the ballot paper. I really like Diane, and, um, and she's got a... I said right at the outset that everybody who everybody got a... Uh, you know, when Ed Miliband asked me if he should stand, I said, look, if you've got an argument to put and a case to make, then you should stand. And I think everybody who's got a... A, you know, a view they want to put and a debate they want to have should put the name forward and I'm really pleased they've got the nominations. In fact, I mean, I know Ed Balls will be delighted by this. He, uh, you know, once he got to 33, he said, you know, uh, he wanted to see Diane on the ballot paper and he encouraged people to nominate her and uh, I think it's really good news that she's on there. Yeah. Uh, are you an Ed Balls supporter? I should know this, but I don't. Well, I've, Ed, Ed's, been a, Ed's been a friend of mine and a colleague for, uh, for a long has, time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah look, no, I've nominated Ed. You can't be sure that people yeah, back yeah. their friends in the contest. No, 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 I've nominated Ed, and, uh, you know, I think he's, uh, you know, I think he's got the right approach. I think he can, he's shown that he can take on the Tories, that he's shown that he can unite the Labour Party. He's shown that he's a team player, which is why I think pretty much, you know, I'm not sure about all of them, but certainly the vast majority of the people that have worked with him in his ministerial teams are supporting him. Uh, so I think he's got the right, uh, the right qualities and the right values to lead the Labour Party in the future. That was Ian Austin. We've already heard from Harriet Harman today, but of course she's acting Labour leader. So up against David Cameron at Prime Minister's Question Time. How did she do? Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Harriet Harman. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, before the election, the coalition parties talked about ending what they called the surveillance society. The coalition agreement said the government will further regulate the use of CCTV, but on Monday, the Home Secretary couldn't tell the House what this would mean in practice. Can the Prime Minister tell us now? 
Well, the first thing, I'm not surprised the Honourable Lady wanted to move on uh, to another <laughs> subject. Let me just make one last point on the previous um, question. Yes, well, I'm sorry if it's, I'm sorry if it's painful, but it is important. You know, the, the right honourable lady says it's not right to redraw, raw, redraw boundaries until you've sorted out the electoral register. I have to point out, we fought the last election on redrawn boundaries. <laughs> so, uh, I think we've got a long way to go uh, on that one. And there was just the, I have to say, whiff of special pleading. On the issue of surveillance, let me be clear, I support closed-circuit television cameras. I have them in uh, my constituency. They're very effective. When I worked at the Home Office many years ago, I championed those schemes. But I think everyone understands that the level of surveillance has got very great in our country. And as well as the issue of CCTV, there's also the issue of how many different sorts of officials are allowed to enter your house without permission. And we will be bringing forward legislation to deal with this issue. I know that the Labour Party has given up on civil liberties. It is... uh, they, uh, they're making a, and also I mean, she used to be head of the what was it was the National Council of Civil Liberties. Those are all a long time ago. But on this side of the house, we think civil liberties are important. Harriet Harman. Well, c- can I ask him again? Because I wasn't asking him about people entering people's houses. I was asking him about CCTV. And can I tell him what Theresa was saying to me on Friday? And that it's not. Not, not the Home Secretary, uh, but, but Theresa from the Poets Corner Estate in my constituency. Because they... <laughs> that Theresa. That's the one that knows about living on an estate that needs CCTV. And let me tell him, they don't want to be told by this government that it's going to be made harder to get the CCTV they need on their estate. Can I press him on this? This is about people feeling and being safe in their communities. Will he guarantee that he will not do anything to make it harder to get or to use CCTV? I think the right honourable lady should understand this is all about proportionality, making sure we have a system that helps protect, uh, helps protect people but also respects civil liberties. I have to say it is extraordinary how the party opposite is becoming more and more authoritarian. I mean, to hear the right honourable member for Morley and Outward talk about immigration, and we've got the new Alf Garnet of British politics. It's, um, it's one of the biggest... Um, one of the biggest U-turns that any of us can remember. For 13 years, not a word about immigration, not a word about our borders, and now they're all um, in a race. Maybe, um, maybe it's time to move on to another subject and she can tell us what she thinks about immigration. I thought it was um, a fairly measured uh, Prime Minister's question time. I have a horrible feeling that all Prime Ministers start off full of good intentions, let's inform MPs, let's be terribly polite to them all, even the ones we disagree with on our own side and the other side. David Cameron doing that, but even he uh, indulged in a few uh, uh, low blows today. Uh, Let's see what uh, Simon Hoggart, he's seen even more than I have. Uh, Let's see what he thinks of it. Well, it's the uh, second week of grown-up Prime Minister's questions, which I found very disappointing uh, because I like uh, noise and shouting and fighting and rubbish like that. Uh, It's a bit like I find going to a rugby match in which you get there and you 
paid for your ticket and you're looking forward to a really, really exciting game. And the announcement comes over the last week. We've decided this is all very silly. Everybody's sort of jumping up and down and kicking each other and grabbing each other around the waist and bringing each other down. Somebody one day is going to get hurt. So we've decided that instead of um, having a rugby match, we're just going to have a jolly good, sensible debate about what we should be doing instead of kicking each other. Anyway, I hope they'll bring back the old rough and tumble, and I'm sure they will. But hang on, Simon. Uh, uh, Dave committed a couple of professional fouls during that session. He called Ed Bull's uh, uh, Alf Garnet for his revised views on immigration, and later on he stole, uh, I think that's the right word, Andrew Lansley's announcement made immediately after Prime Minister's question time that there was going to be an inquiry into uh, the hospital catastrophe which killed so many people in Staffordshire, uh, which Lansley was cued to do. So he strikes a fine tone, but... He's, um, he's still as nifty as he was when he was leader of the opposition in some ways. Well, indeed, yes, that's quite true. And uh, so we could call him the Wayne Rooney, if you like, of the, uh, uh, of the Commons. Uh, he's the guy who tries to get in these things while the, uh, the referee isn't looking. But one thing he did say, which will be very controversial, possibly more controversial than uh, anything else in the entire half hour, was his announcement that they're going to hang, the, hang they're going to fly the St. George's Cross of England over Downing Street until... I don't know, did he say the end of the World no, Cup? as long as, long as, as, long as England are in it, which may be only a couple of days. I'm, I'm pleased to uh, tell my honourable friend that I've had those um, conversations. There was some question that this was going to have a, a cost impact, but I've managed to cut through that, and I can say at no additional cost to the taxpayer, the flag of St George will fly above Downing Street during the World Cup. Yeah! Well, uh, uh, an interesting day good session of PMQs I thought notwithstanding Simon's doubts and of course we've got a proper Labour leadership contest which isn't full of uh, uh, dull responsible white blokes uh, who all went to Oxford or Cambridge so that's progress uh, who's going to win the le- Labour leadership? I normally pride myself on being able to give a confident answer and for the last three or four Gordon Brown, Tony Blair John Smith Neil Kinnock, it was much easier I have to say I don't really know. My hunch is it'll be a milliband. But I get violently different advice as to which one it will be. So we'll have to see. And now back to John Dennis. Thanks, Mike. Still to come in Guardian Daily with me, John Dennis, new UN sanctions against Iran over its nuclear programme and a cultural history of skin. First, autism affects about 130,000 children in the UK and it's caused by genetic mutations that are found in fewer than one in a hundred people, scientists have found, and their discovery will make diagnosis easier and it could even lead to treatments being developed. That's according to a major new study and Alok Jha has the details. Well, for a long time, uh, scientists have thought that autism has a massive genetic component uh, to, to its causes. So um, through various other studies that, and through family histories, they've known that it's an inherited condition. And what this does for the first time is pinpoint specific areas of uh, our genetic code which are different in people with autism compared to people without. How has this study carried out? So what they did was to um, study about a thousand people with autism and a thousand without and they looked at specific areas of the genome uh, for what they called copy number variations. Now these are variations where large chunks of DNA are either repeated 
or they're deleted entirely. And uh, we all have them and they're, they're fairly common and um, there's nothing wrong with having them except when these, these copy number variations occur in or around our genes. And uh, if that happens, then it can affect the functioning of those genes. And what they've done is to identify something like 100 locations. Uh, and there, there could be, by the way, many hundreds more when it comes to something as complicated as autism. They've identified 100 or so places where uh, if you've got variations in those specific places, you're likely to be, uh, likely to be at risk of autism. And just remind us um, what uh, autism is, because pe- people with autism have difficulty communicating and socialising, don't they? That's right. So autism is a learning disorder uh, in children that affects the brain's development um, you, and the manifestations are communication problems and, and things that people will be familiar with. And some people can be very severely disabled by it. It's a difficult thing because it's very hard to diagnose until kids are perhaps sometimes up to five years old I mean generally they're diagnosed earlier than that but uh, it's done with a very sort of behavioral method so uh, children are seen by experts maybe for several years to see if they're exhibiting autistic problems Um, and hopefully what will now happen is that with more biological basis for autism which is what we've got in this study you might be able to develop more specific genetic tests that will that doctors can use for children who've got a family history of autism and they can use them for these children and say and tell their parents right okay you've got these copy number variations there's no guarantee there's no guarantee that all that this is this child is going to develop autism but there's a specific risk and so shall we intervene earlier can we develop uh, can we use these treatments earlier so perhaps the severity doesn't get so bad um, over over the, the child's lifetime or perhaps even in the future if we can target these specific genes with drugs that might help to alleviate some of the problems so it's kind of opening the door onto a whole new world of research into this very very debilitating condition alok jar World Cup, World Cup, every four years it's the World Cup, World Cup. If you don't pick up a grunge in the build-up, build then we'll love it when you score a goal. Ooh, did you see that? World Cup, World Cup, it might well end in tears or a headbutt. Head you can follow all the blogging on your laptop. laptop. From Slovenia to Slovakia, from Nigeria to the Côte d'Ivoire. Ooh, ah, Côte d'Ivoire. The Guardian and Observer, packed with World Cup coverage every day. The UN Security Council has voted to impose fresh sanctions against Iran. They'll target senior figures in the Iranian regime, revolutionary guards, as well as firms involved in Iran's nuclear and missile programs. The resolution also expands an existing arms embargo and tightens restrictions on the Iranian financial and shipping industries. The Guardian's Middle East editor is Ian Black. If you listen to the responses of the Iranian leadership, you would conclude that nothing at all is going to happen. They say that they'll carry on with their perfectly legitimate nuclear program and ignore uh, this sort of pressure. If you look a bit more closely, you see that the Iranians seem to be quite concerned about this. Uh, They've had uh, Russia and China uh, voting for this round of sanctions. Uh, I think the sense is that there will be a sort of psychological impact uh, as the Iranians realise that simply by ignoring the demands of the international community. And we're talking about the UN here, not uh, this is not some you know Iraq war scenario with America banging the drum. This is the United Nations has called on Iran to comply with these demands over its uh, nuclear program, and it's failed to do so. So now the UN Security Council, which is the top table of the world's most powerful countries, have come together to impose this new round. So even if they don't have a huge effect on the Iranian economy, 
uh, I think the feeling is that uh, the Iranians will be brought up short by the international unanimity behind these measures. Does it mean that countries such as Russia and China have now lost patience with Iran? Well, they've lost patience with it up to a point. I mean, sanctions, of course, had to be agreed. And the package that's just uh, been voted on is the fruit of months and months and months of intensive uh, diplomacy. And uh, it's a lowest common denominator. It's what everybody would agree to. So the Americans, the British, the French would have liked to have seen tougher action in some areas. The Russians and the Chinese were insistent that they wouldn't support uh, direct sanctions, for example, on the Iranian energy sector, which is extremely important, nor would they back anything that was perceived as as harming uh, the ordinary Iranian. So the focus has been on the regime, on uh, companies and institutions associated directly with the nuclear program, with the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, who are a very, very important part of the system. But it has been agreed by the UN Security Council. And, you know, in terms of international affairs, things don't get much more united and unequivocal than that. And these are the first sanctions since the unrest following last year's disputed presidential elections. So might that have a, an effect internally in Iran that it hadn't, previous sanctions hadn't had? I think that is the difference between these sanctions and the previous rounds, that uh, it's almost exactly a year this weekend since the Iranian presidential election ended in disarray and in mass protests over the allegation that the, uh, the the ballot had been rigged in favour of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the hardline incumbent. There has been considerable unrest in Iran. It's faded away. The regime is in control. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, but the sense is, I think, against the background of uh, a bad economic situation, mismanagement, corruption, and this sense that uh, the Iranian political system is still dealing with the consequences of last year's mass demonstrations, that any further trouble could combine, if you like, with the sense that Ahmadinejad, with his insistence, the regime insisting on continuing with this nuclear program, are just you know, not, not the right leadership for the country. So I think there's a hope that it'll feed into generalised dissatisfaction with the regime, but I wouldn't put it stronger than that. And might we see further protests this coming weekend to, on the anniversary of the election? Well, the, in the big picture, you have the impression that uh, the regime has pretty much got things under control. They've sent out warning messages against mass protests. The demonstrations haven't been licensed. But I think it'll be important also for the Green Movement, the primary opposition movement, the supporters of Mir Hussein Mousavi, who believed he'd won the election, that they can still uh, make their voice uh, heard. Uh, Iran has been shaken by those events. The regime is still in control. But I think perhaps the combination of the reminder of, of those events last year, the continuing protests, and now this international pressure that's been piled on today uh, will, will certainly not go unnoticed. Ian Black. I'm John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Now, the skin, vital protection for the human body, but it's also been used in a variety of ways by artists. And now a new exhibition at London's Welcome Collection charts the cultural history of skin. In a moment, we'll hear from a heavily tattooed Maori artist. But first, The Guardian's Maeve Kennedy speaks to one of the people who's put the show together. We're here in the first section of the exhibition with the curator, Javier Moscoso, beside one of his own favourite pieces, which is a very gruesome image of a flayed body helpfully holding up its own skin with its own rather horrified-looking face showing. It's a fascinating exhibition because everybody who walks into it is wearing an example of the subject, which must make it unique among exhibitions. But Mm. 
although you have taken a subject that could have been very mm. sensationalist, mm. I think you've been very careful to do more than that, to do something that is more sensitive and perhaps gentler than right. that in the exhibition. I do not sympathize with uh, shocking people. I think the, the, the power of, ex of an exhibition has to come from the very argument and not from the pieces themselves. I mean, the pieces have to be powerful, but of course the idea is, uh, or in my view, should, it should never be to shock people just because of that. And of course it would have been very easy talking about the matological diseases or about representation of a skin to have produced uh, more gruesome images. And, but I, uh, yeah, we tried to, to work exactly in the opposite direction, which is, first of all, being as elegant as possible, and then secondly, try to build in, in sort of a kind of very delicate argument about how precisely this uh, very organ that we all wear, the skin, is not as well known as, uh, as perhaps many people would think of. Thank you, Javier. I'm standing beside George Nuku, who should really be caused to stand here throughout the entire exhibition because he is a work of art himself. He is covered with the most beautiful tattoos, including his entire face, except it just, for my squeamishness sake, I'm glad to say it just avoids his eyes. George, can you tell us something about the cultural significance of tattooing to your people? It's not just a decoration. It's not just a fashion thing. It is those things, but much more, yeah. It's, um, it's erotic. It's linked to uh, vanity, and it's linked to pride, and it's uh, linked to display, and it's linked to the, uh, to the showing and the proving of intent. And do the patterns on your own face have a meaning, or are they purely decorative? They're both. Read your face for us. Uh, the, top of, the top of part of my uh, head here, this is called tifana, and this is uh, a, a pattern that is really distinctive to the region I come from. It's on, on many levels, it's communicating many ideas. One such idea, it talks about the bat and how the bat is this role model for, um, for family. All the patterns and things that are on my face and body are basically um, animals and, and forces of nature. And, and what's beautiful about them is they, um, they come from the creatures that come out at night. The creatures that come out at night are seen as the caretakers of the world. They do the night shift when um, everybody's asleep. There's something quite deep and quite spiritual about the fact that they come out at night. So what is the <laughs> traditional excruciating way of making them? It's to, it involves um, a hafted chisel made of uh, the wing bone of an albatross. It has a flat blade and it's literally um, carved into your face. How painful was it? It was bloody sore, yeah. It's nice to hear somebody <laughs> admit that. People who have tattoos usually say, no, no, it was nothing. I'm no, it was sore. Are you a finished work of art? I see some pieces of blank canvas still on my, you. My, the my hand I have just shaken is still untattooed. My, my darling says to me um, that, that those pieces belong to her and my knees as well. And, yeah, and she said, the world owns the rest, but those parts are hers. <laughs> Maeve Kennedy there and Skin is at the Welcome Collection in London until the 26th of September Guardian Daily was produced today by Tim Maybe and in Westminster by Phil Maynard My name's John Dennis Thanks for listening Guardian Daily News and reports from around the world